So we're, this is the um, fifth in our, in our Lenten series we've been using as a study guide, uh, the book by Howard Thurman, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a very simple structure to the book. Jesus as a disinherited person himself, and then the, the three hounds of hell that uh, affect disinherited people, all people, but he gives it from that perspective. The three hounds of hell are fear, deception, and hate. Uh, Emily had the, she got to do hate last week, which is the colorful, interesting one. I was stuck with love. It's like, <laughs> dear God, you know. So this, is, this one kicked my butt. This, this Howard Thurman in this chapter, I must have read this thing four times before I could really, like, try to distill. It's so ch it was so challenging, the perspective he brings. Um, and the test, of course, of love in the Christian tradition is love of enemy. So that's the distinctive form of love that uh, puts the whole understanding of love uh, to its ultimate test. And, you know, love of enemy seems like a, seems like a fabulous idea in the ab absence of any actual enemies. Um, you know, for a wasp like me, uh, the world isn't overrun with like personal enemies. So it's like easy for someone in my position to say, love of enemies, yeah, that's a, that's a great thing, but it's kind of like a Hallmark card understanding uh, if that's your experience of, of life. Um, maybe that's why my, my group, we invented the war on Christmas because, you know, we, we all need enemies. So we, can't, we, we have to make ours up, us white guys, right, Steve? Yeah, I get it. I'm getting an amen from Steve, so... I did make a few enemies as a pastor, um, you know, quite apart from being the gay guy in the evangelical world. Um, just the occupational hazard part of uh, being a pastor, you know, makes you run afoul of people. I was, I was prepare, preparing a sermon one um, Friday uh, morning on the beheading of John the Baptist where, you know, uh, uh, John the Baptist is in the basement in prison, in Herod's palace, and, and Salome, uh, the, the, the um, so, how do you pronounce it? Salome, Salome the, the um, daughter of Herod's new wife, is like, you know, providing entertainment, does this beautiful dance. Herod says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He's drunk, you know, uh, make any, any wish. And her mother says, I want Herod's. Uh, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, and Salome gets that. And I'm, so I'm studying this text for the sermon, and I get a call, ring, that back when phones rang. I answer the phone. It's my regional overseer within my denomination. He tells me, Ken, I just got a letter from someone in your church who's very upset with you. And there's like a group of people meeting and they basically want to get rid of you. Like you're impeding the work of the Holy Spirit and their understanding and you're not bringing in this new revival thing that's been happening and they want that to happen. And I'm like, oh, okay, Ron, you know, it's like, yeah, people get upset with pastors and I'll meet, I'll, it's no problem, I'll meet with her. He says, no, you don't understand. She wants your head on a platter. And I go, oh, <laughs> oh my Lord, <laughs> I think I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> he wanted me to stand up the next Sunday and denounce this group. And <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll meet with them. We'll figure it out. It, it all worked out. 
once my late wife Nancy, who was um, a pastor at the time, was counseling a woman who was in a, seemed like an abusive uh, marriage and kind of helping her see it and stand up for herself. And, and the woman told her husband what Nancy was advising and he became enraged and he threatened to get his gun and come after my wife Nancy. And I, I called the police. Uh, fortunately, it was a higher up in the Ann Arbor Police Force who attended the church at that time. He said, oh, I'll send a, a, a squad car past your house a few times tonight. And I'm like, that's reassuring, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I like sat on the couch all, all night uh, uh, wide awake until eventually things got resolved. So, you know, for, for a wasp, you might have enemy episodes like that at work or a toxic family member or you might trigger someone's road rage. I've done that a few times. Uh, but most people in human history live under some more like serious threat, more like systemic oppression. And so they hear and understand the whole teaching of loving your enemies very differently. Um, so I was doing a seminar with uh, uh, at Salem Presbyterian Church in Oregon a couple of uh, weekends ago, and I was with Andy. Uh, many of us remember Andy. A transgender man told his story here. Actually, one of our uh, founding members of Blue Ocean Faith. Now he's in seminary in San Francisco. And so I invited Andy to come and join me for this uh, seminar because it was a Presbyterian church that wanted to become fully inclusive. They didn't actually have much experience with sexual minorities who were part of the church. And so Andy told his uh, story in this all-day seminar that we were doing. And he's got a heck of a story. Uh, he was kicked out of a Christian college after the, being told that even though he was tr tr uh, transitioning, he would be welcome until the trustees found out. And then, and then the welcome evaporated. And he couldn't use the bathrooms at certain times. And all this boo honking. He, he goes back to his home church. He's kicked out of his home church. The pastor had assured him that he would support him through his transition, but the board found out, and the pastor's support evaporated under the influence of the board, and he's kicked out of his home church. He has his um, surgery, and the surgery goes poorly. He's, he's, he's recovering from the significant surgery. The, something wrong with a morphine drip that he was on it was malfunctioning, this automatic morphine drip. And his heart, he's watching as his heart rate is slowing down, slowing down uh, practically to the, the last thought before he went unconscious was maybe the church is right and I am an abomination to God. He survives, obviously. So imagine the story being told to a traditional Presbyterian church is filled with white heads listening. They've never had any experience with anything like this. Andy takes, has a little Q&A time afterwards. Woman asks, what are you most afraid of now? And he says, well, a third of trans people are subject to bias-generated uh, assault. So that's what I'm afraid of. That's what it's like to have enemies. That's the perspective that uh, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies and because he was 
a person who was disinherited. He, he lived with that same kind of threat. So in Jesus and the Disinherited, Howard Thurman is, he's writing as a black man in the pre-civil rights era in the South. I think he uh, encountered Martin Luther King's uh, father and Martin Luther King at Morehouse College. Jesus, uh, who taught love of enemies, was subject to the same kind of brutal, racist, life-threatening oppression. So in Israel, it was crucifixion. In, in the U.S., it was lynching. The same, same thing. What Thurman wants to do in his book is he wants to strip the command to love, including love of enemies, he wants to strip it of all its sentimentality. And he wants to understand it from the most challenging position to understand it, which is of an oppressed person. And he says that an enemy is someone who has been blinded by hate in one of its many forms so he can't see you as a fellow human being. And if you remember what Emily was saying about what Thurman was saying last week, he, he has a very broad understanding of how hate manifests itself. But here's the thing, he's saying, all our exercise of privilege over others uh, our unwillingness to step into a place of equal footing with everyone breeds hate and can actually be a form of hate. It's a form of hate that if you're in a privileged position and you're operating this way, you're probably blind to. Thurman talks about this situation. He calls it contact without fellowship. Human contact without fellowship. There's, there's really no good word that's gender neutral for fellowship, like co-personhood. A fellow in this sense is a person in the same position that you are. When you're fellows with someone, you're in the same position with them. Thurman says that like under the Jim Crow laws, there was lots of contact between blacks and whites in, in the South. There were more blacks in the South than in the North. Lots of contact, but there was little fellowship. So, you know, I think about this is that like as a middle-aged man, you can like use your power to be funny and playful with the busy young waitress, right? At the, at the good restaurant. And she kind of has to like play along with your repartee and your, oh, you're so funny, especially after that first drink. And, you know, you're chatting and chatting. Or, I mean, like she's got too many tables and doesn't really have time for this. But, you know, the whole, the, the relationship is set up. You've got the power, the tipping power, you know, and she needs the money. And so this, this is like contact without fellowship. The contact is on like your terms, not hers, and she can't really very easily change the rules. So what Thurman is saying is that love requires fellowship. Love requires fellowship. He says love is only possible between two freed spirits. Love is only possible between two freed spirits. So this corresponds to what John says about love. Love is only possible when there's no fear of punishment involved. There is no fear in love, it says in 1 John. Fear of punishment is what he's talking about. So, like there's a huge difference between love and order. Um, order, you know, if there's a choice between K 
chaos, utter chaos, and having a dictator, sometimes having a dictator is better for everyone than total chaos, like we saw that in the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Uh, and so sometimes the New Testament writers are urging respect for order in their writings. You know, like they want people to survive. So it's obey the authorities, pay your taxes, even slaves obey your masters. But that's not teaching about love at all. That's just teaching about like respecting social order for people's safety. It has nothing to do with love and that teaching in the New Testament is not framed as love teaching. Thurman is tuned in as only a disinherited person can be, to how privilege and power play itself out in relationships that are meant to be marked by love. And he's saying if we ignore those factors, we'll distort the teaching of Jesus about love, including love of enemies. And, and this is what I wrestled to his, like, his nub. And it sounds kind of plain, but I think it's quite powerful when it's put into practice. He says, it is necessary for the privileged and the underprivileged to work on the common environment for the purpose of providing normal experiences of fellowship. So that we're not just having contact with each other, we're having fellowship with each other. And it's necessary for both the privileged and the underprivileged to work together on the common environment so that that's possible. So it's like he's saying, together we have to build a better playing field, a more even playing field. Now, it sounds kind of like theoretical, but when you see someone putting it into practice, it's quite radical and it's quite powerful. And Jesus is the great example in the Gospels of doing this. Jesus was love incarnate. He wasn't the law and order Messiah. He was the love Messiah. And so what he always tried to do in his interactions with people was establish fellowship rather than contact, co-personhood. That meant if Jesus was in the position of privilege, he would let go of the privilege in order to establish some equality, the possibility of fellowship. Uh, if he was on the underside of the power equation, like the waitress in my example, he would refuse to play along with the terms set by the privileged person. And he could be kind of snarky. Um, so like uh, example of the first, the woman caught in adultery, you know, the, 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 some, some rulers they catch a woman in adultery, they let the man go obviously, they bring the woman to Jesus to say, okay, what should we do with her? And you know, it's a big scene, it's a big public scene, the poor woman immediately, Jesus, who kind of has the privileged position, he's the rabbi that they're coming for the ruling, what does he do? He kneels down. He, he refused, he won't make eye contact with the woman because the, the other men are making like ferocious, you know, stink eye, eye contact with the woman. And he, he engages in like an ongoing debate with these elders about the situation while he's kneeling, um, uh, doodling in the dust with his finger. He doesn't care about his connection with, with these guys because they're not on any kind of even playing field with him, he's concerned to establish fellowship with this woman. That's the, his whole strategy in that interaction. 
Or take uh, a time when Jesus is on the wrong side of the power equation, when it's Jesus before Herod and Jesus before Pilate as part of his interrogation leading to crucifixion. He gives both, in different accounts, the silent treatment. Um, his loving his enemies wasn't like, you know, reaching out to them, connecting with them, you know, chatting with them. He gave them the silent treatment. So Herod uh, is an interesting example. Herod was kind of excited to see Jesus because Jesus was like the latest phenomenon. And Herod had all these questions and wanted to see Jesus do some of his magic tricks for Herod. But Jesus wouldn't play that game. He just stood mute before Herod. He won't play Herod's game unless Herod is willing to meet Jesus as an equal. So silence was the only way that Jesus had to assert his dignity as a fellow human being with Herod, and that's what he did. And he took a similar strategy with, uh, with Pilate. The Roman centurion, completely different. Roman centurion had a lot of power. The Roman centurion would be like in a village or a town like Capernaum. There might be one or two centurions. They were responsible for a hundred Roman soldiers. They were like the, the lords of the place. And this Roman centurion had a servant who was uh, close to dying and heard about Jesus, the wonder healer. He was friends with some of the synagogue rulers and he sent the synagogue rulers to Jesus to bring Jesus to heal this servant. And Jesus is like all over that because the, the Roman centurion is humbling himself. He's, he's like coming in, in a position of human need to Jesus, the healer, and Jesus can work with that. And so he has a totally different response to the Roman authority in that case. The most fascinating interaction um, through this lens is Jesus and the Canaanite woman sometimes known as Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. The most embarrassing, if you're a Jesus fan, interaction Jesus had with any human being ever. And I, I have read so many attempts to try to make sense of this interaction. I'll just read it to you and you'll see why it's so challenging. This is from um, Matthew 15. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. <laughs> What's he going to do with that? <laughs> you know, one of the gifts of the Jews uh, to the world is their commitment to understanding our shared humanity unflinchingly. So there, there are very few, if any, idealized heroes in the Bible. 
All the great Jewish heroes are, they always have feet of clay, whether it's, whether it's uh, Abraham, whether it's King David, it doesn't matter. They're presented at their best and they're also presented at their worst. This is, behind this is the Jewish understanding of what it means to be human. To be human in the Jewish understanding is to be a glorious contradiction in terms. You're, you're, you stand between the dirt and the divine in the, in the origin stories. You're, you're made in the image and likeness of God and you're made out of dirt. You're made out of clay. And so the Jewish understanding of perfection is like very different than the Greek understanding of perfection. The Jewish understanding of, of perfection is not without flaw. You know, like the Hubble telescope had to spend millions of dollars to go fix it because it had, had a couple of little imperfections in this massive lens that, that made the uh, Hubble telescope work out flying in, in space. That's like a Greek understanding of perfection. But the Jewish understanding of perfection is to fill out your humanity for all it's worth. Like to, to grow into your truest self, to be the, 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 the best version of you. So Susan Bach, who gave the um, eulogy at Dick Williamson's um, funeral, like exemplified this. And they, 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 Dick's son told a story about him that, you know, kind of made him look like, wow, he said that to that, whoa. And, and Susan said, you know, the, the thing about Dick is he really was great at being himself. And, that, and that's getting closer to like the Jewish understanding. Like that's to, to fill out who you really are as a human being is the, is the goal of humanity. Not like achieving some kind of Greek uh, perfection in that other flawless sense. And this vision is reflected in how uh, the Jewish Messiah is, is represented in the Gospels. In, in many cases... When Jesus had the privilege in a relationship with someone, he very quickly and easily let it go. But this time, the disinherited woman, the Canaanite woman, has to basically pry it from him. So by Matthew 15, where this occurs, Jesus is like exhausted. Um, in, in Matthew 14, it, the only person who was remotely like a peer to Jesus by this point was John the Baptist, who knew what it was like to lead a big movement and to have a controversy with the elites over it. And Jesus, it was like John the Baptist and Jesus were the only ones who could, uh, they were in that like um, big shot club. And, and also uh, John the Baptist, I believe, was a cousin of Jesus. And he had just been murdered, but he had been beheaded. So imagine someone you knew and loved died, you know, that way. Their, their head was separated from their body. Jesus is reeling from this. It's clear in the accounts that tell this. He's, he retreats for, he gets away from the crowds or he tries to. But this is the time in his ministry when there's like unrelenting pressure. I mean, when you have a healing ministry, you're under unrelenting uh, pressure. Amy Semple McPherson had this amazing healing ministry in the, in the um, uh, would have been the early 20th century. And she had, wherever she went, there were just people lined out the door and she would, she would get exhausted doing her healing thing. 
So he's under that same pressure. He's also under intense scrutiny and criticism from some of the elders of Israel. And, and they're going out to get him in different ways. And his disciples are tuned in to their anxiety. And they're getting anxious with Jesus and critical of Jesus and unsure of where Jesus is going. And so he's surrounded in this situation. He escapes from Israel to Syria. To get, to get out of this pressure cooker. He's had it with his own po people, but now he's on foreign soil. You know how you can be like frustrated and angry with your own country for some reason, and then as soon as you go to a foreign country, you feel defensive and protective about being an American. It's like a different, a different thing depending on where some of you, maybe you're like, uh, you know, with, with your conservative families, you feel very liberal. And then with your liberal friends, you feel, feel kind of conservative. And you're always in betwixt and between. Jesus is in, I think, a space like this. The Canaanite woman comes, and this is my reading of it. Other, you can have your reading. There's this, these are very difficult uh, things to interpret because they're ambiguous, as many human interactions are. So if you like mine, fine. If you don't, come up with your own. But the Canaanite woman comes yelling at him for help. So he's, he's there, he's taking a break, and this woman is, is yelling at him. His first response is non-response. She's yelling at the disciples, too, to get him to respond. And they implore him to send her away. He doesn't. Instead, he says, and who does he say this to? I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not like he's saying that to the disciples. Is he saying it to her? Is he saying it to himself? It's, it's not really clear. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The fact that he doesn't send her away, though, like the disciples want him to, seems to embolden the woman, and she approaches him more directly, and she's bowing down at this time, making her demands. And Jesus, I hear him saying, saying it in this same kind of weary voice, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the docks. Now, in the Middle East, there was uh, um, different cultures do verbal jousting in different ways. And in the Middle East, the, one of the classic ways to do verbal jousting is almost like a, a match was uh, with the uh, throwing out proverbs. You throw out a proverb and the person would throw back a different proverb that would maybe make a different point or whatever. And so Jesus is throwing out a proverb. He says, yes, but even the dogs... No, uh, his proverb is, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The background here is that you know, people of Israel are under harsh Gentile oppression. And it was common to refer to the Roman occupiers as Gentile dogs. It's, it's pretty understandable. He's using this proverb at this woman. This woman is, the woman, though, is undeterred. And she matches his proverb with another one. Yes. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. She's actually verbally besting him in this interaction. She, she won't let him have the last word. You know how when you're in an interaction with someone who has more power with you one of the, than you do, one of the reasons that you know they have more power is they always insist on having the last word? You know, you're... 
you're explaining something to each, you know, it's complex to each other, and the, the person in power has to have like the final word of explanation. Or you're interpreting something, you're telling a joke, you're commenting about a movie or whatever. The person in power always likes to have a, the last word on the topic. Well, this woman flips it. She has the last word on the topic. She won't let him have the last word. This woman is making Jesus see her as a fellow human being. That's what she's doing. I don't know if you've seen the town halls that have been happening lately where the, you know, like the cancer survivor is in the face of the congressman who's, and she's telling her story and, and it affects the congressman. It's like, it's human to human suddenly. And, you know, you can make a policy decision that affects others based on philosophy or ideology, but it's another thing to face the people that are affected by your policy. And in these town hall meetings, we're seeing a lot of those pretty interesting interactions, and they're having, having an impact. I see it a little bit like that between Jesus and this woman. This woman asserts herself until Jesus sees her. She is a mother who is not going to be deterred until she can get some help for her daughter. Do you see me? <laughs> and eventually he sees her. He does see her. And he doesn't see her because he was looking. This is not Jesus doing his Zen thing, you know, being present in the present moment and receiving everything that happens to him and letting it be what it is and letting the person be what the person is so he can respond. No, this is not Jesus in his Zen moment. This is Jesus in a different kind of mode. And she's grabbing his face, making him see her. And then his heart opens. Oh, woman. Oh, woman. It's like, oh, woman, I see you now. Your faith is great. That was like the highest compliment Jesus gave, gave to any human being is he loved seeing faith in people. And when he saw faith in people, he was like, that's it. Oh, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And he, he gives her the highest compliment he can regarding her faith. You know, oppressed people need allies to gain um, equality. That's, that's true in every... Um, you know, freedom movement. But equality only comes, if it ever does come, by the oppressed people themselves demanding it, right? I mean, that, that's the intrinsic dignity of the oppressed manifesting. That it's like, like it's, it's not enough for like someone to just like give you the power. You've got to demand it yourself in order for, that's how it works out in, in history. Um, I think the gift of our transgender members is, is connected to this. Um, a, a transgender person is making us see them as sometimes only they see themselves. I think that's a very powerful thing. I, I, um, I spent a weekend with Andy um, and Andy, uh, you know, we had uh, meals together and, and uh, we did this uh, conference together, spoke together at church uh, two times to the seminar. And Andy was, was, you know, talking at the table and different things. And he told me that he knew himself to be male from as early as age two or three. 
even though his body and society and his family told him he was female, he knew himself to be male. And, and then he mentioned that he had an early, a very early sense of God in his life, and he did. He grew up in a Lutheran church. Um, a very early sense of God, and he said, Andy, you're, did God know you as a male or as a female in, in that your early, earliest awareness? He said, he knew me as a male. So the, the God that he knew, knew him, it was like a secret that Andy had with, with God, and God recognized the secret in Andy. So for Andy, as for so many uh, trans people, the act of transitioning was really an act of showing people who he really was. And, and Andy had to assert that self against great blindness in others and social constraints. I mean, you, you cannot make that kind of a tra uh, transition without asserting yourself. And that actually is a very powerful lesson for all of us. That, that's what this woman was doing with Jesus. Jesus wasn't in that receptive mode. And she took him by the collar and said, see me. And then he saw her. So, you know, from a religious or a theological uh, perspective, there's all sorts of problems with this interaction, you know. How could Jesus be acting like that, you know. We have a choice. We can either bend ourselves into a pretzel, explaining how Jesus really wasn't blinded by his own in-group prejudice, or we can say what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If he can have his blinders blown off and survive, I guess I can too. J Jesus doesn't have to be the hero in every story about Jesus. Like, his status is pretty well established, you know. Jesus doesn't have to be the hero in every story about Jesus. In this story, Jesus is the privileged person whose eyes have been blown off, his blinders have been blown off by this assertive woman. She's the hero, not him. Now, that makes me identify with Jesus more and want to follow him more, oddly. I mean, that is the Jesus we can follow when we're having contact without fellowship with someone. We're not seeing the other because of our own blinders, and we're blind to our own blinders. There, there, was, there was something Jesus did not see in this woman because Jesus was a man, and Jesus was a Jew, Surrounded by people who didn't see this woman either. But when this woman asserted herself to Jesus, he let the blinders blow right off. We are all blinded by something. And we probably don't know it at first. We absorb the prejudice of our in-group and it becomes part of us with, our, with or without our permission, Right? Jesus is calling us to follow him by letting other people blow our blinders off. To follow Jesus is not just to like become, you know, like, oh, you become so socially aware and you're into 
social justice and you know you're oh I can see my privilege and blah 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 to follow Jesus is to follow him by letting other people blow your blinders off Jesus also in this interaction I think is dignifying here anyone who has had to assert their identity to others in order to be seen for who they are have you ever been in that, you know, like a relationship with like a family member, parents and kids, you know, kids grow. Parents have certain ideas of who the kids are, right? You know, that are fulfilling their dreams or like they're part of their family story and you know, parents tell stories about kids which are like the parents' narrative of who the kid is, but then the kid grows up and be actually becomes someone, is someone, is a never been before. And then that's when the child has to decide, do I let my parents know who I am, even if it might distress them a little bit, or it might, you know, break me out of their nice little box they've got for me. And that takes a lot of courage to do that sometimes. We all, if we're really going to be known and create fellowship instead of contact, we all have a responsibility sometimes to assert who we are in order, order to be known, even if that assertion is not welcomed at first. And Jesus is dignifying that process in this interaction. And it's ultimately something all of us need to learn from the Canaanite woman how to do. It's really part of the birth pangs of love uh, breaking into the world, this process unfolding. So, done. Let's have a little time of uh, reflection and meditation. And I want to lay on you a, a little meditation that I learned from uh, Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. This is a little uh, uh, meditation. It's uh, based on uh, the uh, rich man and Lazarus, a parable Jesus taught. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Brother Lawrence says, um, take that, that picture and picture yourself as the, as the beggar. And I'd say put a little twist on it. Make, it a, make, it, make yourself a blind beggar in this case. Uh, to do these kinds of meditations, I suggest doing it playfully. So, like, imagine that we're in a theater class, and I'm like the theater professor, and you kind of get, you have to get ready for this part. And, but in order to get really, to, to sell this part, you've got to, like, figure out how it connects to your own life, and how, you know, you have to meditate on it and think about it, what's really going on in the interaction here. And it's, it's not a matter of getting it right, it's just a matter of getting something that can be authentic for you when it comes your turn to, like, play the part, okay? Only there's none of the, you're not going to play a part in front of any, anyone, so you can, your hands can just stop sweating right now. This is just a silent meditation sitting where you are between you and God. So just, I would just invite you to picture that scene. I'll, I'll uh, read it again. Just fill in the details. Try to picture that scene. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate 
was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. I just suggest that you place yourself in that scene in the role of the beggar, who among other things is blind. You know, people have to lead you to this spot which should be a good spot. It's near money, <laughs> but for this blind rich man who can't see you. And just place yourself in that scene. You might want to let yourself feel the resentment of the fact that this filthy rich man is blind to you. He's living in luxury every day, comes out of his house every day, doesn't see you. It would be so easy for him to just to give you a little, little bit of a hand, but he doesn't. Just feel that resentment. Not being seen. And now just tune into your own blindness that you, you can't see. That's your condition. You can't see. What would that be like? And now as uh, Brother Lawrence recommends, um, imagine Jesus and his disciples are coming to your town and they're coming by and they intersect you in that situation and then just let your imagination run with that what happens do they bathe your wounds do they surround you take care of you how do they minister to you Jesus and his disciples And then just to close it, if um, you want to talk to Jesus about that rich man and your feelings about him, what might you say to Jesus and his disciples and what might he say to you? be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. <laughs>